Welcome to the Friday edition of Transformation Radio. And now as we turn our attention to the reading of the New Testament, our narrative today comes from the book of 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. Here's a little bit of what will be happening here as we read today. Jesus had told the disciples that false teachers would come. Peter had heard these words, and at this time, he was seeing them come true. Just as false prophets had contradicted the true prophets in Old Testament times, telling people only what they wanted to hear, so false teachers were twisting Christ's teachings and the words of his apostles. These teachers were belittling the significance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And some claimed that Jesus couldn't be God. Others claimed that he couldn't have been a real man. These teachers allowed and even encouraged all kinds of immorality, especially sexual sin. We must be careful to avoid false teachers today. Any book, CD series, TV message must be evaluated in the light of God's Word. Beware of special meanings or interpretations that belittle Christ or His work. Peter gives three warning signs for identifying false teachers. Number one, immorality. Do their lives contain or condone immoral practices? Does the group listening to the false teachers have a lot of immoral sexual relationships? Number two, greed. Teachers have a right to financial support. There's lots of scriptural reference for that. But is money the teacher's or group's prime motivation? Before you send money to any cause, evaluate it carefully. Is the teacher or preacher clearly serving God or merely promoting his or her own interests? Will the person or organization use the money to promote valid ministry? Or will it merely finance further promotions or extravagant lifestyles? And number three, lying. Is the leader offended when you ask for the scriptural backing behind his or her statements? Does he or she fudge on the facts when asked for evidence? The believers today would do well to heed Peter's warnings against false teachers. No matter how charismatic they might seem to us, the danger is great. All right, if God did not spare angels, or people who lived before the flood, or the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah, He would not spare these false teachers. These words that promised justice were a great comfort to those who were oppressed. God will punish all evildoers. These words also served as a warning to wanderers to not stray away from the truth. Some people would have us believe that God will save all people because He is so loving. But it is foolish to think that God will cancel the last judgment. Don't ever minimize the certainty of God's judgment on those who rebel against Him. All right, with that, let's begin our reading today, here in the New Testament. November 28th, the New Testament, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies, and even deny the master who bought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction on themselves. Many will follow their evil teaching and shameful immorality. And because of these teachers, the way of truth will be slandered. In their greed, they will make up clever lies to get hold of your money. But God condemned them long ago 
and their destruction will not be delayed. For God did not spare even the angels who sinned. He threw them into hell, in gloomy pits of darkness, where they are being held until the day of judgment. And God did not spare the ancient world, except for Noah and the seven others in his family. Noah warned the world of God's righteous judgment. So God protected Noah when he destroyed the world of ungodly people with a vast flood. Later God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and turned them into heaps of ashes. He made them an example of what will happen to ungodly people. But God also rescued Lot out of Sodom because he was a righteous man who was sick of the shameful immorality of the wicked people around him. Yes, Lot was a righteous man who was tormented in his soul by the wickedness he saw and heard day after day. So you see, the Lord knows how to rescue godly people from their trials, even while keeping the wicked under punishment until the day of final judgment. He is especially hard on those who follow their own twisted sexual desire and who despise authority. These people are proud and arrogant, daring even to scoff at supernatural beings without so much as trembling. But the angels, who are far greater in power and strength, do not dare to bring from the Lord a charge of blasphemy against those supernatural beings. These false teachers are like unthinking animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed. They scoff at things they do not understand, and like animals, they will be destroyed. Their destruction is their reward for the harm they have done. They love to indulge in evil pleasures in broad daylight. They are a disgrace and a stain among you. They delight in deception, even as they eat with you in your fellowship meals. They commit adultery with their eyes, and their desire for sin is never satisfied. They lure unstable people into sin, and they are well trained in greed. They live under God's curse. They have wandered off the right road and followed the steps of Balaam son of Beor, who loved to earn money by doing wrong. But Balaam was stopped from his mad course when his donkey rebuked him with a human voice. These people are as useless as dried-up springs, or as mist blown away by the wind. They are doomed to blackest darkness. They brag about themselves with empty, foolish boasting. With an appeal to twisted sexual desires, they lure back into sin those who have barely escaped from a lifestyle of deception. They promise freedom, but they themselves are slaves of sin and corruption, for you are a slave to whatever controls you. And when people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and then get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. It would be better if they had never known the way to righteousness, than to know it and then reject the command they were given to live a holy life. They prove the truth of this proverb. A dog returns to its vomit. And another says, a washed pig returns to the mud. Psalm 119, verses 113 through 128. Undecided people cannot make up their minds between good and evil. But when it comes to obeying God... There is no middle ground. You must take a stand. Either you are obeying Him or you're not. Either you are doing what He wants or you're undecided. Choose to obey God and say with the writer, 
I love your instructions. The writer asks God for discernment. Faith comes alive when we apply scripture to our daily tasks and concerns. We need discernment so we can understand and we need the desire to apply scripture where we need help. The Bible is like medicine. It goes to work only when we apply it to the affected areas. So as you hear the Bible, be alert for lessons, commands or examples that you can put into practice. Psalm 119 verses 113 through 128. Zemek I, the Lord, hate those with divided loyalties, but I love your instructions. You are my refuge and my shield. Your word is my source of hope. Get out of my life, you evil-minded people, for I intend to obey the commands of my God. Lord, sustain me as you promised, that I may live. Do not let my hope be crushed. Sustain me, and I will be rescued. Then I will meditate continually on your decrees, but you have rejected all who stray from your decrees. They are only fooling themselves. You skim off the wicked of the earth like scum. No wonder I love to obey your laws. I tremble in fear of you. I stand in awe of your regulations. Hayin, don't leave me to the mercy of my enemies, for I have done what is just and right. Please guarantee a blessing for me. Don't let the arrogant oppress me. My eyes strain to see your rescue, to see the truth of your promise fulfilled. I am your servant. Deal with me in unfailing love and teach me your decrees. Give discernment to me, your servant. Then I will understand your laws. Lord, it is time for you to act. For these evil people have violated your instructions. Truly I love your commands more than gold, even the finest gold. Each of your commandments is right. That is why I hate every false way. Proverbs chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. A hard worker has plenty of food, but a person who chases fantasies ends up in poverty. The trustworthy person will get a rich reward, but a person who wants quick riches will get into trouble. Hey, it's Zach Pruitt here with Transformation Radio. Just a reminder that Monday is Orientation Day at the Refuge Ministries. If you or anybody you know is struggling with addiction, homelessness, or hopelessness, come to the Hilltop Lutheran Church located at 12 South Terrace Avenue in Columbus at 10 a.m. on Monday. Please call 614-991-0131 or visit our website at menslivesechanged.org for more information. Thanks for listening to Transformation Radio, and have a blessed day. The following audio is from The Refuge Church. More information about The Refuge Church is available at therefugechurch.org. Good morning. Let's all uh, just bow our heads together and start with some prayer. How about that? God, we thank you so much for, for just bringing us all here safely and And Lord, we want to honor your name this morning. We've all come here with various, you know, different weeks, different situations, different struggles, different um, things that are encouraging us and are exciting to us, things that are um, conversely discouraging and struggling. And, 
And I just pray that we would just approach you this morning and look into your word and, and just uh, really wrestle with our faith, what we believe about you, and, and how we respond. Yeah, my prayer for all of us is that we would respond in faith, we'd respond in repentance, that we just ask that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each of our lives. That, God, you would direct our steps and that we would be listening to, to that direction. And God, often life's um, difficult. It's, it's not as clean cut as we'd like it to be. And, and, and to that end, I pray that um, we, would, we would press into to your church, to your, to your community, that we would read your word, we'd seek godly wisdom, and that, God, we would rest in your truths. So Lord, be glorified in us. We we praise you. Amen. Amen. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be in Hebrews chapter four, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through thirteen. So if you wanna grab your Bible and turn there, or you can follow along on the screen. Um, again, I hope you're well. I had a a pretty a pretty good morning, just um, praying and just confessing some just struggles and sins before the Lord, and just. Uh, had a really good time with with Noah and with um, Doug, the other pastor here, just of just talking through some things, praying together, and, and just really felt God begin to just bring some clarity and some comfort, and and just reminded um, how of how grateful I am to be able to be here and to be able to teach the word and to be able to get to know so many of you, and and um, that that's my hope for us is that we would just be a community of people that are pursuing Jesus Christ and that love Jesus, and that we're, we're confessing our sins, and, and, and I'm doing my best to model that. That kind of stuff isn't always fun, but you know, like, if we want to be like Jesus, we've got to be in an in a environment where we, can, where we can be honest, and so, and so uh, that's that, all right? Well, this is going to be our last week. Um, this is week four in a series titled Rest, Finding Joy and Peace in the Gospel of Jesus, and and so we're calling this week's sermon Consummation Rest. And, and so far what we've looked at is we've looked at creation, we've looked at sin, we've looked at redemption. So three out of the four major themes that we find in the Bible. And today we'll complete it. And so what's consummation? Well, consummation means the point which, in which something's complete or something's final. And so we look forward to the end. So the big question there is what does the Bible say in terms of rest in Christ eternal? And so, let's just go ahead and start this morning by, uh, by reading our text. Hebrews 4, 1-13. through 13. It says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have, been, who have believed enter that rest, as he has said. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he said, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Continuing in verse 8. 
For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. So that's the word of the Lord today. You know, there's a lot here, but we're going we're gonna to just focus on three things. And the, and the first thing is we're going to briefly describe the difference between the Old Testament covenant and the New Testament covenant. Secondly, we're going to look into what it means, you know, as we conclude this series, what it means to enter God's rest. And thirdly, lastly, we're going to contrast the differences between perseverance and disobedience. And so let's begin. First point, Old Covenant versus New Covenant. What does this mean? Well, in verse 1, we, we see that it said, Therefore, while the promises of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, they shall not enter my rest. First big question, what's a covenant? What are we talking about when we talk about covenants? And really what I want us to think about is, is the, bigger, the bigger question behind that question is, how does God relate to you and I? How does God relate to us? And so renowned theologian Wayne Grudem, he defines a covenant as this. And this is on the screen. He says, a covenant, he defines a covenant as an unchangeable, divinely imposed legal agreement between God and man that stipulates the conditions of their relationship. So in the Bible, we see three distinct covenants that God makes with man. But we're going to focus um, briefly our attention on two of those. And so the first is what, what the Bible calls and what, what theologians unpack as being the covenant of works. Again, Grudem says, In the Garden of Eden, it seems quite clear that there was a legally binding set of provisions that defined the conditions of the relationship between God and man. The two parties are evident as God speaks to Adam and gives commands to him. The requirements of the relationship are clearly defined in the commands that God gave to Adam and Eve and in the direct command to Adam. You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of, but of, the tree of, the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. In this statement to Adam about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there's a promise of punishment for disobedience, death, most fully understood to mean death in an extensive sense, physical, spiritual, and eternal death, and separation from God. But in the promise of punishment for disobedience, but in the promise of punishment for disobedience, there's an implicit promise of blessing for obedience. It's a lot of words. You're probably still, you know, scratching your head maybe. But the, cov- the covenant can, covenants can be broken up like this. So I made a table. Hopefully we can read this. But, but at least this will help a little bit. 
The covenant of works can be broken up like this. So the parties involved in the covenant of works are God and human beings. The initiator of this is God. God started it. God initiated it. The time was at creation when God made everything and he said, these things are good. The condition, perfect obedience. Perfect obedience. What happens as a reward? Life. What happens if we don't, we don't engage in perfect obedience? Well, immediate death, physical and spiritual. The covenant, or the covenant following the covenant of works is what's called the covenant of grace. So the covenant of grace can be broken up like this. The parties involved are God and sinful human beings. The creator's God. When did this happen? After the fall, after sin, after Genesis 3. Way after Genesis 3. And we see kind of what inaugurated this. The condition is what? Faith in Christ. Now remember the covenant of works. The covenant of works was perfect obedience. That was the condition. The condition in the covenant of grace is faith in Christ who satisfied the condition of the covenant of works. What's the reward? Spiritual life. What's the penalty? Spiritual death. So why are we talking about this today? Why are we talking about this? Well, we see, we see in, uh, in the beginning of our text, therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Now, Paul is often, he's very intellectual, and often his writing can be somewhat confusing. So what is this they that he's talking about? The they that this text is referring to is the Exodus generation. So some of you have probably heard uh, the story of Moses and how God used uh, Moses to lead the nation of Israel out of Egypt, right? Maybe, maybe most of us, some of us have heard, have heard that story. Well, well, this is the they that this text is talking about. It's talking about the Exodus generation. Because it says the message they heard, they being the Exodus generation, did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Well, practically, the Israelites in the Exodus generation were under the covenant of works. And we are under the covenant of grace. And so practically, what Paul's doing a little bit is, is in Hebrews, in our text today, is he, he's, compare, he's comparing us to them. He's saying, the good news for the Exodus generation included deliverance from Egypt, the covenant God established with his people, seen in Exodus 6, 2 through 5. And thirdly, the good news for the Exodus generation was the hope of the promised land, right? They were sojourning. They left Egypt and they spent 40 years in the wilderness. So the good, one of the parts of the good news for them was that they were going to enter the promised land. We see in Exodus 6, 2 and 5, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I'm the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I've remembered my covenant. So again, the good news for this Exodus generation is deliverance from Egypt. One. Two, this covenant that God made with this people, the people of Israel, 
And thirdly, that they would, that they would arrive to this promised land. So these are, this is the good news for, for their generation. Now, Paul is saying the good news for the church, us, is first, revelation and deliverance from our sins found in Christ. Secondly, the new covenant and deliverance found in Jesus' priestly sacrifice. And then thirdly, the hope of eternity with God. Not a physical place, an eternal place. So in a nutshell, this is one of the biggest distinguishing factors between the Old and New Testaments. The different covenants that these people found themselves in. The people in the Old Testament were under the covenant of works. The people in the New Testament, after what Christ did and accomplished, are now under the covenant of grace. So a question might be, does the covenant of works still exist today? Does the covenant of works still exist today? In some sense, yes, for those who do not put their faith in Jesus Christ. Because as we saw in, in, in verse 2, for good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So hear me, today, those who choose unbelief in Jesus over belief in Jesus are still under the covenant of works in the sense that their sin leads them to spiritual death. Does that make sense? Another renowned theologian, R.C. Sproul, he said this. He says, The covenant of grace, far from destroying the original covenant of works, actually makes it possible for the covenant of works to be fulfilled. This is why we don't disregard the Old Testament. We learn from it. We see, the, we, we see it in light of what Jesus has accomplished. We see it in light of the gospel. That's why it's ludicrous when people say, you know, we, we live in the New Testament. The Old Testament isn't important anymore. No, that's not, that's not true. That's not true. Rather, the new covenant of works, it fulfilled the covenant, or the covenant of grace fulfilled the covenant of works. And so, and so it allows us to learn. It allows us to see how, how sin originated and all these sorts of things. So therefore, the covenant of grace doesn't nullify the covenant of works, but rather fulfills it. The covenant of works demands sinlessness and perfection before a pure, before a holy, before a good and just God. Jesus fulfilled that requirement by coming to earth, living a sinless life, dying on the cross, and resurrecting, ultimately switching places with sinful man, switching places with us, and offering you and I a way to know and be known by God. This is how this works according to the Bible. This is why the gospel of Jesus is considered good news, because it's good news, right? Romans uh, 5.8 says, But God showed his love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is good news, because as a result of sin, which all of us commit, right? We deserve death. But because of Christ, we have the offer of life with God. And this is what we were originally created for. This is what we were originally created for. So the first question in the Westminster Catechism is this. What's the chief and highest end of man? Great question. What is our ultimate purpose? Why are we here? And the answer is, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. 
That, that's why we were made. That's why we were created. We are created to be in relationship with a holy God and to give him glory. We substituted that by attempting to give ourselves glory. And this is the first sin, and this is the result of sin, pain, suffering, and all those sorts of things in the world. So the promise of Hebrews 4, verse 1, is that the promise of entering his rest still stands. This is good news. And so let's move on to the next point. The next point is, how do we enter that rest? What does this even really mean? How do we summarize all this in looking forward to the things to come? What we see in verse 6, it says, Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day. Today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. So Paul, in Hebrews, is quoting King David. And this comes straight out of Psalm 95.7, which says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He's saying, do not respond to God with unbelief, but with faith. Respond with faith. Again, going back to what he said in verses 2 and 3, the message they heard didn't benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. They, being the Exodus generation, they didn't benefit from the good news because they didn't respond in this kind of faith. Then he says, for he who has, for, for, for we who have believed enter that rest. So we've already covered it in this series, but I just want to catch us all up, make sure we're all on the same page. Over the centuries, what theologians have identified to be the factors that bring mankind into right relationship with God. Or let me pose it as a question. How should we respond to God in light of what Christ accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection? What makes sinners become saved? And what, what's universally accepted among, among evangelical theologians is that, that man should respond to God in faith and repentance. Faith and repentance. We enter God's rest because of faith. The ESV study Bible shows us that God's rest in Genesis Right? In Genesis 2, 1 through 3, when God made everything and he rested on the seventh day, so he called it good. That God's rest in Genesis centered upon recognizing that his work of creation was completed. We enter God's rest through recognizing that Christ's work of redeeming us from sin has also been completed. So this is on the screen, but this is really one of the, the this is one of the big ideas of this whole series, and that's this. God rested in his perfect work. We rest in God because of Christ's perfect work. We don't bring anything to the table that can save us from our sinfulness. God rested in his perfect work. We get to rest in God because of Christ's perfect work. And that happens because of faith and because of repentance. Repentance meaning turning from my ways and turning to God's ways. Pastor and author uh, Tullian Tavigian, he writes this. I love this. He says, the Bible never starts with what we need to do. It always begins with what God has already done. 
To get it the other way around makes Christianity just another self-help program. Just another curriculum of self-improvement. Self-improvement for the sake of self-improvement is not the gospel. It's not biblical Christianity. But this is our default. This is where we go on our normal day. I work for God, not to know God, but so that I can prove that I'm worthy. So I can try to clean myself up. I want to show him that some way, somehow I can save myself. Now this is ludicrous because if somehow we could earn our right standing with God through our own efforts, then, then Jesus wouldn't have had to come to earth and die on the cross. It makes a mockery of the cross. The cross doesn't make sense anymore. It took that to fulfill the covenant of works. It took, it took Christ's perfect obedience to make up for all of our disobedience. So everything is God's. All credit is due to God. And again, if I can make a reference to our first point this morning, if you remember the two covenants we mentioned, works and grace, notice that they were both initiated by God. We play a passive role. Why? Because we're not comparable to the God of the universe. We're created beings. He creates and gratefully he's good. Gratefully he's good. And despite our imperfections, despite all of our imperfections, he made a way for us to be with him. This is good news. We should respond by faith and repentance to Jesus. That's how we enter God's rest. Last point. Let's briefly contrast the differences between perseverance and disobedience and how they relate to our faith in God. So we saw in verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his work as God did from his. So what we know about Joshua is Joshua was the successor of Moses. He's the, the, the man that ultimately led them into the promised land. We know that Moses didn't actually get to do that. So Joshua, he, he led the people of Israel into the promised land. So they wanted rest by getting to this promised land, a physical place on earth. Regarding this text, the ESV study Bible says again, rest now for us means the ceasing from spiritual striving that reflects uncertainty about one's final destiny. It means enjoyment of being established in the presence of God, to share in the everlasting joy that God entered when he rested on the seventh day. Let's move on. Verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by, this, by, some, by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. I want, you to, I want you to notice, right at the beginning of verse 11, it says, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. The word striving means there's an element of perseverance, that it's ongoing, Right? Perseverance means this. It means steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty or delay in achieving success. 
That doesn't describe many of us often, does it? Steadfastness in doing something despite difficulty. This may not be easy. There may be many difficulties. But perseverance is steadfastness in the face of adversity. Now we must remember in saying that, that our salvation isn't based again on what we do. Although the life of a true Christian will be a life where, the, where faith is preserved to the end. Right? Somebody doesn't become in right relationship with God and then they lose their faith along the way and they still get to be with God. That doesn't make sense. A true faith, an authentic faith, if we are truly born again, then our faith will persevere until we're dead. We will believe in Jesus. We will believe that he is who he said he was until we die. That's true faith. That's authentic faith. So the, what, what, and then what also we need to notice here is that the opposite of perseverance is disobedience. So therefore we must look. This is where you can start investigating your own heart this morning. Because we must look at the evidences of our life. Is our life revealing that we have faith in God? Is our life revealing that our ultimate hope is in Christ? Am I becoming more like Christ? These are all elements of perseverance. Are my affections for Jesus growing and deepening? Are there evidences of God's grace in my life? Are there evidences of God's grace in your life? We have to look at the evidence. I hang out with um, the guys at Braille, the, the third phase refuge guys every Wednesday night. And that's what we've been talking about for the past few weeks is we start out um, the past couple of weeks with, we just go around the room and like, are there, what, are, what are some evidences that God, of God's grace in your life this week? What's that mean? It means, man, like a year ago, I would have punched some dude for saying that thing to me. But this week, I'm, I'm noticing that I, I'm not responding that way. Small evidences of God's grace. It's a stupid example, but you get the point, right? <laughs> Is your life marked by faith in Jesus or faith in yourself? Is your life marked by repentance of your sinfulness and an ever-growing submission and reliance upon Jesus? Or is your life marked by unrepentant and habitual sins? These are questions we have to ask ourselves. These are all evidences of saving faith. And this is a big point I want us, I want us to, to ponder upon this morning. Perseverance means we are never perfect, but we are in the process of being perfected. Perseverance means we are never perfect, but we are in the process of being perfected. Perseverance means that what God started in us, he will complete. Perseverance means that if we are truly Christians, if we truly have that saving faith moment, then we can't do anything to lose God's saving work in our lives. But we must look at the evidence. Saving faith looks like persevering faith. Persevering faith holds on to Christ and his promises for all of life. But one thing the Bible teaches for certain, and Tullian again writes this, he says, is that God's, 
is that once God saves us, he will, we will persevere to the end because Jesus persevered for us to the end. It's good. Then we have this, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. I love how Paul always goes here. What's he referring to again? The Bible, the word of God. So when we read the Bible and we submit to what God says about life, it begins to, he uses the metaphor of a sword, it begins to, like a sword, cut through us. And I like this line. He says, in discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What's he saying? It's that if we were honest, we know that we often deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into doing things that are awful, into doing things that are sinful, that will ultimately bring destruction to our lives, that will bring destruction to others' lives. But since it's often so appealing to our flesh, we justify it. We convince ourselves of its merit. We convince ourselves that it's okay. It makes me happy. Right? This text is saying, persevere by living, accor- by living accordingly to my word. Let the word pierce through all of your thoughts and intentions and ask God through reading his word to reveal truth to you. Verse 13, last verse for the day. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it ends with a warning, doesn't it? That none of us are exempt. That no creature, that's us, is hidden from his sight, his being God. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give an account. I want this to sink in. This will be the last, uh, the last quote. But regarding this, John Calvin, he writes this. For as it is God's office to search the heart, so he performs this examination by his word. For as it is God's office to search the heart, so he performs this examination by his word. So as we conclude this series, I want all of us to realize that ultimate rest is found in being in right relationship with our creator God. This God is made known to us through the work of Christ and by the revelation of the Holy Scriptures. He's made known to us through the Bible. So we know God by putting our faith in Jesus and we know Jesus by reading and submitting to the Bible and what the Bible teaches and through the work of the Holy Spirit who is transforming our heart and our mind. God searches our hearts and examines us through the conviction that's given by the Holy Spirit, but also through the reading of God's word. So this morning, realize that the gospel starts with God and not with your efforts. As a result of sin, everything is broken. Everything. And so our true authentic faith towards God should produce within us honest repentance where we turn from our selfishness, where we turn from our sinfulness and we turn wholeheartedly to God. 
As a result of faith and repentance, we embrace the invitation of Jesus to come to him, to take his yoke, to learn his way. And this will produce within us gospel rest, a light burden. We saw that last week in Matthew 11. And lastly, true Christians can rest assured within the covenant of grace and know that what God has started in them, he will complete. He will complete. As we continue to pursue Christ, he will continue to preserve us as his people. We will persevere to the end in Christ. And last little note, this is really our big thesis, the big idea, is that just as God rested upon the completion of a perfectly created world, we can rest in God because Christ's work in his life, death, and resurrection were perfect. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for, for, for the deep rest. I, what we all search for, what we all long for. It's the best word that you know, we could come up with to just define, you know, at the end of the day, what we all want, I think, deep down is, is peace. That we can live with ourselves. That, you know, what's the meaning of life? Why do I exist? What, what is all this for? What, what is all my working and all my yearning and all these desires, all these dreams, you know? Everyone tells me I need to have a five-year goal and all this stuff. What is it for? Why? Because I know that one day I'm going to die. I know that we all die. And as depressing as that may sound, it's reality. So where is rest found? Where is peace found? And God, I believe what you're saying through the whole counsel of your word is that rest is ultimately found in you. Because our chief end is your glory. We were made for your glory. And so we thank you. We praise you. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from the Refuge Church in Grove City, Ohio. For more information about the Refuge Church, please visit therefugechurch.org.